So I mentioned it was great to see our kids. We talked a little bit about the border, but in Chiang Mai, Doi Saket, uh, Sar kids, we've been uh, interacting with them now for 10 years, bought property, built an orphanage, realized we could build another orphanage on the same piece of property, hired staff. We do that through an organization called Asia's Hope, but it's really our church, Grace Community Church, that supports entirety these two orphanages every day, day in, day out, food, clothing, education, the whole nine yards. That's all on you. We've been doing that now for 10 years. It's been great. I've been able to watch some of these kids grow up. We now have three in college, uh, Gingdao, Nichinet, and Bua, and they're, they're thriving in college in Chiang Mai, and uh, just it's a super major privilege uh, to be able to be involved in that. And as I've said, we've grown close to our staff as well. That's four different couples in addition to Tutu, who's the national director. There's four couples that work there, and uh, they, they do an amazing job. They're, all of them are Bible school graduates uh, that are serving there, and we just love interacting with them. We're excited about some other new, a new initiative that we really can't go public with yet, so we'll let you know that, uh, that, that I'm really pumped about. And when I can share that, I'll share that. And uh, just exciting, exciting stuff. We are wrapping up a series in First Peter. What we like to do is uh, go through books of the Bible. And we've been through the book of First Peter. This last message, we're in the last chapter. And that is chapter 5. So I invite you to turn there. If you want to grab one of the Bibles in the chair rack in front of you, uh, that would be great. But I want to set the context for you. Um, in this whole book, if you haven't been here, the context is, is that Christians, uh, Christianity is expre- spreading around the eastern edge of the Mediterranean, and as it's spreading, there are conflicts, and Christians are being persecuted. And, and people start realizing that even to become a Christian, they will be persecuted. And we have the whole Nero thing in Rome. He's blaming Christians for burning of Rome. And so persecution's breaking out all over the place. And it's in this context that Peter is writing a letter that is intended to be passed from church to church to church. And he's doing this in the midst of suffering. And he's trying to encourage them. And basically he's saying, hey, don't be surprised at suffering. God has not promised us an easy life or a pain-free life. Don't be surprised at that. God has given us free will so we can willingly follow him if we want, have a relationship. We're not robots. He doesn't force that on us. But along with that free will comes the ability to sin and do evil, and that's why there's evil in the world. And he's saying, hey, don't be surprised. Trust me. You will make it through. And that's basically what he's saying, and, um, and it's true for us. Just like Christians in the first century world, We are really aliens, we're exiles, we belong to another kingdom, another world in a sense. And we're here, and sometimes here we may face hostility even for our faith or just go through difficult, difficult times, loss, disease, whatever, tough times. And and Peter's telling us, don't be surprised by that. And so as he closes his letter in this last chapter, the first thing he does is he addresses church leaders. So I don't want to skip that. I'll pick that up, and then I'll get to the main teaching portion uh, that follows that. And so here we go in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, 
I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. And what's he tell the elders? Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So there's actually three terms that he uses in this passage that all refer to leaders in the church. Elders, shepherds, which is the same word for pastors that we use, elders, shepherds, and overseers. And these all kind of bleed into each other and really emphasize some of the different roles that leaders in the church are to do. And and that's a little different for us. Uh, we're not, uh, as we, we look at this whole thing um, about the leaders in church, we don't talk about that a lot, but I, I just want to bring that into how we practice that at Grace. At Grace, we have an elder board here. Two of our pastors, Tim and I, serve on that elder board with six qualified men from our church congregation. In addition to the, those elders, then there are also the rest of the pastors. We have six pastors and two uh, resident pastoral residents. And then, obviously, we have other staff members as well who lead us, for example, in music and take care of our tech and our information systems and our finances and admin and stuff like that. That's our staff. But here, he's specifically pointing to pastors, elders, overseers, this group who lead the flock of God. And he does that. And by the way, the flock of God reminding us it's not the pastor's church, right? It's God's church. And then he's challenging them with three negatives. As you lead, as you serve, don't do this. He says, first of all, don't lead under compulsion. Don't be forced or pressed into it. Don't lead under compulsion. Lead willingly, voluntarily, according to God's will. And then he says, don't lead for sordid gain, meaning don't do it for money, but do, be eager to serve, do it that way. And in New Testament times, uh, elders were paid. Uh, you can see that in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and different places. But his point is nobody should be doing this for money. And I don't really know of any pastor personally who does it for money, but that's, that's what he's saying. We, we want to do it voluntarily. We want to do it eagerly. We want to do it willingly. And uh, we don't want to do it for the wrong Reasons. Some people might ask, well, you know, I don't know what people think. I don't know if they think we take an offering and then the pastors go back in a room and divide it all up or, you know, what happens. But I don't see any of the money, nor do I have control of any money, nor do I have the combination of the safe or anything else we do around here. That's all handled through other people. And the elders set the pay of the pastors. And when, and there's two pastors on the elder board, and when they talk about our pay, we're not in the room. So that's how we do it at Grace, and then they use industry standards and statistics and, uh, uh, in order to figure that out. But uh, that's kind of how that goes, in case you're wondering or you're new here at Grace. But uh, he's telling us then, third, that we should not lead in a domineering way. 
We shouldn't lord it over people, domineer people, uh, be harsh with people. And I don't think anybody at Grace has ever experienced anything like that. But he's, Peter's warning leaders, that's not what you do. Rather, we are to be examples. We are to lead lives that people can say, oh, that's, that's the way you live as a believer. And so that's what he's challenged us to. And then he says, and the chief shepherd will reward you for your faithfulness. So there, as he begins the last chapter, he addresses the leaders of the church. And next, he's going to give us five essentials for all of us. Now, how many people notice that I'm wearing something? All right. What I'm wearing here, this is a, a sling pack. Or we would call it a day pack back in the old days in Colorado is what we call this. And uh, I actually, I had one. I purchased one of these several years ago in Thailand. In Thailand, a lot of guys wear these slings. But I purchased one. It was very handy. And I noticed on my trip this time that it was getting torn up. So I actually purchased a new one, an upgraded one. As a matter of fact, as I was talking to the person in broken English, uh, she knew a little bit of English. She was telling me how this backpack is tough, it's rugged, it's guaranteed for life. I mean, it's guaranteed completely. It's actually waterproof, you know, all the stuff. And if anything happens to this, I can replace it anywhere in the world. I'm just saying, this is what this person told me. And I, I, I took it, man, I, I bought it. But as I was wearing this around, some people on our team started to ridicule me. And I, I don't want to mention any names, but her initials are Jill. Uh, it started with that. And then that caught on to everybody, and they started calling it a MERS. I don't know if you know what MERS means, but I took that to mean man purse, and I wasn't liking it. And so as we were interacting, I had to keep defending that this is a rough, masculine pack that is used by people to take care of business, and it's ready for any adventure. It's rugged. It's guaranteed. It can handle anything, and if anything happens to it, it can be replaced anywhere in the world, and it's waterproof and all these things. And so all through our trip, as I was being ridiculed for wearing this, I would then share a story on how this pack could save our lives because of its ruggedness, ready for any adventure. For example, if David, this is one of the stories I told. If David and I were walking along the edge of a cliff, and there was a river down below, way, way down there amongst the rocky crags, and all of a sudden David slipped, and he fell off the cliff, but he was able to hang on to some root or branch, I could lower the pack down to him. He could grab on. I could pull him up over the cliff, and thus save his life. <laughs> and if by slim chance the buckle broke or the, the, the strap tore and David plummeted to a gruesome death at the bottom of the ravine, no worries, because I can take this in anywhere in the world <laughs> and they will replace this. Free of charge, no charge, new pack. So I was explaining these things, but now here's the thing. During the entire trip, multiple times a day, as I was being ridiculed for wearing my rugged pack, 
my masculine pack, which is a cultural issue in Thailand, also that men wear these things. But anyway, the whole, after 12 days on the road in Thailand, nobody, and, and discussing this multiple times every day, nobody ever asked what was inside the pack. Nobody ever asked that. Do you want to know what's inside? Okay, well, and some of you, it's unfortunate for you because I'm telling you anyway, but the rest of you, you want to know, that's great. What's inside this, what, what I have in my hand are the five essentials for aliens and exiles traveling in a country that is not their own. Okay, very practical. So here's what I got. So first of all, five essentials, right? The first thing is, a passport. Because if you get in any trouble, the first thing local authorities want to know is, who are you and are you supposed to be here? So you got to have a passport. So it kind of goes without saying. The next thing I have in here is local currency. I got Chinese one here. I have uh, bots, many bots. There's a thousand bot note right on the top there, which is about, what, four bucks. But anyway, there, <laughs> I, I even got some rupees here. So you got to have local currency. Key. Very important. And then the next thing I have is a, anybody know what this is? A life straw. That's right, a life straw. Because you cannot carry enough water to survive in the jungles of northern Thailand. This is a life straw. That It's a tiny filter system. And so it filter all the water that you would need in case something happened, yada, yada. So that's it. And then, f- fourth, you ready for number four? This. This is my Thai translator. And about... I can speak English into this, and it will translate verbally into Thai, and it's actually accurate about 23% of the time. It tells you, it actually says the correct thing. Plus, this is a GPS, plus this is a flashlight, and by the way, the phone I have lasts about three days on a battery, unlike some of your phones, and, and got the flashlight the whole nine years. And not only that, you can make a phone call with this thing. So key, that's one of the essentials. And then the, la- the fifth essential is the pack itself. Rugged, guaranteed, masculine pack that if you tear it on any adventure, if a rhinoceros horn somehow tears this off, you can take this anywhere in the world and replace it free of charge. So you just got to know that. Now, those are the, the five essentials for traveling as an alien as an outcast, as an exile, as a refugee in a country that is not your own. And Peter is telling us the same thing at the end of his book. It's chapter 5. He's closing it out. He's been talking to these people that have been through all kinds of suffering. And he tells them, hey, you're aliens. Expect suffering. You're aliens. What's he saying? You're not home yet. Things are not going to be perfect now. There will be trouble. And he basically gives five essentials for us to live as God, God's people in a world that sometimes is hostile. And he's saying, expect the hostility. And so it's these five essentials that I want us to see in the next few verses, beginning with verse 5. And here's the first essential. This is more implied than completely stated, but the first essential is this, this, whoa, is this. Submit 
to church and its leaders. Now that sounds weird, and we don't talk about that much here, but that's implied all through this. He, he's challenging leaders of the church, and there's some assumptions there. Number one, the Bible assumes that when you become a believer that you attach yourself to a local church. It's not really optional. It's what all believers should do. That's the expectation from God. And he's, he writes to the leaders. He addresses them. We already saw that. Then he addresses young men and says, submit to the leaders. And then he addresses everybody. But the implication in all this is that all of us, if we're truly believers, that God is calling us to attach ourselves, become involved with a local church. And along with that, we never talk about this, but it's submit to the leadership of that church. That's what, that's what he's asking us to do. That's what he wants us to do. And, and it's not the leader's church, right? And by the way, church is not a place or a building, right? What's church? Us, the believers, the people who, and not everyone here is a believer, but those of us who are believers, we're part of this local church. One of the things that happened while we were traveling from Doi Saket, Chiang Mai area, up to Moisat, which is on the border, as we were in a car, about five-hour trip maybe, and one of the times we stopped at a little roadside place and we had some trash and I gathered up the trash and I'm walking toward a trash can to get rid of it, sort of across this parking lot. And Tutu, the national director, lady who's, who's taking us, leading us on this, she intercepts me and she tries to take the trash out of my hand and I don't let her, you know, I'm saying, what are you doing? I'm taking this trash and she says, no, no. And I go, yeah, it's right over there. And she goes, no, no, no. And she takes it from me and she says... In our culture, we respect pastors. And she wouldn't let me throw the trash away. You know, so what could I do is I, I just said thank you. And then I said, hey, maybe I could have you come and do a seminar in Fremont, Ohio at Grace Community Church. Because so I think some of this could really kind of catch on. But we're a culture that's allergic to authority. You know, we're allergic to this stuff. We don't like it. We're not used to it. The whole idea of submission, which is all over Scripture for different people for different reasons, you know, we don't like it. But God has designed that his people would be gathered in local groups and that there would be teachers who could teach the Bible and that all the people would encourage each other, would serve each other, would exercise their gifts to serve each other. Everybody would. But teachers would lead and teach. And, and in our culture, we kind of always put that on the back burner. And I get it. I, I shared earlier a few weeks ago that uh, after I became a believer, I, I actually became attached to a great church in Pueblo, Colorado. And I loved, I loved the church. You know, I was just a teenager, but man, I, I loved the church. I, I would have done anything for the church, and even though they didn't really know me so well. But one time I got in this discussion with a friend of mine, and, and as I said earlier, you know, I was arguing that because my relationship with God was so intensely personal, and I think we all experienced that, that I thought church was, was good but not essential. Good but not necessary. And I got in a discussion with some people, about that, and I, but in the end run on that is I realized I was wrong. And, and here's how I want to illustrate that to you. 
I want you to think of somebody in your mind, because we probably all have friends, we know somebody like this, I do. Think of somebody who says they're a believer, who says they're a strong believer, but they're not committed to any church. I mean, they may pop in once in a while, but they don't do the church thing, not regularly, not involved. So now think of this person, and, here, and, and I'll describe them to you. They have not grown in their faith. They have not grown to be a stronger believer. They have not used their gifts to serve other people in the context of a church, which is what our gifts are for. And they're stagnant. That's, that's how my friends are who don't do the church thing. It's God's plan. It's God's design that we come And I don't mean be a part of a church like you pop in once in a while. I'm talking about being a part of a church where you're actively involved in what's happening. Submit to a church. Not because it's perfect. It's not. And if it were, if you joined it, it wouldn't be. You don't, yeah, some of you caught that, yeah, but we're not perfect. Not because its leaders are perfect. We're not. Submit to church because it's God's idea. It's what God wants. It's God's plan. Now, that's the first essential. The next essential that he talks about in the next verse is that we clothe ourselves in humility. Humility. It's essential. Look at verse 5. It says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's verse 5. Then verse 6, which is a classic verse, almost repeated in another book of the Bible. Classic verse. This, and some of you who have known me a long time, this is the verse that I memorized when my main job at Grace Community Church was cleaning toilets. All right, verse 6, great verse, says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time or at the proper time. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Now, what that is, is it, it makes it okay for us to do menial things because this is not our destination. God will exalt us in the future. We, we have heaven to look forward to. So that can happen on earth, but it will sure happen when this life is over for a believer. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And this helped me serve. Not just serve, but serve with joy. So no matter what menial tasks that you might feel that you're doing in life, and you feel, you know, and I didn't feel this way, but maybe you feel unappreciated or you're doing this and you shouldn't have to do it or whatever it is, just know God loves it when we are humble. And God will exalt us in due time. And this is not our destination. That's what we need to remember. Now, humility is key for us to even be, be a believer. There's actually, when we talk about the good news, what you have to respond to in order to be a Christian, there's really three responses to the gospel. One is to receive it, and the other way is to reject it. But people tend to reject it in two different ways. That's why I'm saying three. So we receive the gospel when we understand that, hey, 
God has created us. We have free will. God doesn't force us to follow him. And that, but we have this gift of free will so we can voluntarily want to know God, love God back, and follow God. But with this came sin, and, that, and we've all sinned, every single one of us. We're all in the sin category. And to realize that God, as perfectly righteous, sin has to be punished. That means for all of us, we all deserve punishment. That's what righteous judgment will bring to you and me. Punishment for our sins, which the Bible tells is separation from God in a place called hell. We all deserve this. I deserve this for my sin. But God loves us. And he loved us so much that at great cost to himself, he allowed Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to come to live an earthly life, clothe himself in humanity, live life, do it without sin, therefore the only one qualified to die for somebody else's sin. And then he was our substitute, paying our sin penalty on the cross of Calvary. Eternal, infinite God suffering and dying to pay for Kevin's sins and your sins. And the way we get that accredited to ourselves is when we humbly realize that there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. It's a complete gift and that we just receive it. We receive it by faith, by trust in Christ, and calling out to God for forgiveness, as Romans 10 tells us. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So we pray to him, asking for forgiveness, and he gives it to us through Christ, only through Christ. That's how we receive the gospel. It takes humility. People reject the gospel two different ways, in my experience. One is, some people will say, I'm not buying it. I'm not that bad. I'm not so bad that God would punish me with separation from him forever. I've not done anything so bad. I'm not that bad, and God isn't that mad. I mean, I'm going to take my chances. I think I've lived a pretty good life. God knows I've tried to do some good things. And, and, and it's pride. It's lack of humility. And pride will keep some people from accepting the gospel. They just don't think they're that bad. And that's a problem. The other ways people eject, reject the gospel is they'll think, I'm too bad. It's the opposite. Not I'm too good. It's I'm too bad. Uh, I've done things. I've been places. I've seen stuff. You know, I'm, I'm just, there's no way that it's that easy. There's no way that just by belief that, that I can just call out to God and he's going to save me based on what Jesus did. No, I'm going to have to do something big. I'm going to have to make up for this. I'm going to have to somehow earn my salvation. It might take a while, but I think maybe I can do it. Or it's just too big. I can't do it. You see, that sounds like humility, but it's false humility. That's really pride too. That's pride saying, oh, I'm in a different category. Oh, I'm going to have to earn this myself as if we could do anything to earn our salvation, which the Bible clearly tells us we cannot. Because doing good does not erase sin. Doing good is what we're supposed to do. So that doesn't get us any extra credit. And so both of those ways of rejecting involve pride. You have to have humility. Clothe yourself with humility is what he's saying. Now, so that's, so that's two. 
And think about how he's saying that. God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. That's serious. I remember when I was a teenager going to this great church and, you know, just a typical teenager and, you know, sometimes got in trouble or whatever. I remember when the, the youth pastor was leaving. I loved this guy and I, I thought I very much respected him. It was the last day I ever saw him to this day. I had helped load up his moving van and he and his family were getting ready to pull out of town forever, out of Pueblo, and they, and they did. And right before he left, my youth pastor called me aside and said, Kevin, I want to tell you something. I'm like, what? He said, you need to deal with your pride. Man, you need to deal with your pride. When he, I thought about that for the next six years. All the time, whoa, man, I need, what's this pride thing? I, I got to, you know, he's seeing something in my life that I need to deal with. So, essentials. Hey, we submit ourselves to church. That's how we grow. That's how we serve. That's how we, we grow as a believer. And then we clothe ourselves with humility. Get rid of the pride. And then the next, as he talks about worry, he talks about anxiety. Here's what he says. Cast all your anxiety, the third essential. Cast all your anxiety, verse 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Cast all your worry on him because he loves you. He cares about you. Now, here's the thing. In Christian circles today, we don't see anxiety as a sin. But it is. We give a pass in our lives on worry. But Scripture's continually telling us it's wrong. At its base, anxiety is a refusal to believe God, God's love for you. It's a refusal to believe God. Because he's saying that he loves us. And it's when you have anxiety and worry, it's, it's when you're, you're not believing that on this topic. So anytime you have anxiety or worry about something that you cannot control, you are really out of bounds. You're, you're going off a different way, not the way God would want you to go. Anytime you, anytime you worry or have anxiety about an issue that you can't control... It is a stab at the integrity of God's love for you. That's what it is. It's not believing God's love for you because he cares for you. Our, our orphanages in Doisaket, we have eight staff people, four couples, two couples for each orphanage, and all eight of them are Bible school graduates. There's actually a Bible school in Chiang Mai. They're all college graduates. And here's what they make. Together as a couple, they get paid the same. But together as a couple, they make $340 a month. About $170 each. One couple, $340 a month. And that pay is set by Asia's Hope, but that organization that we cooperate with. And, and that's why we drop appreciation gifts on them when we hit the country before we leave. We give them, uh, we show them our appreciation with a, 
with financial gifts to each husband and wife separately. And we do that before we leave. But here's what I want to say. In, in being there for 10 years, I've never seen any staff person worry about money. And by the way, things in Thailand cost basically the besides food, cost basically the same as things cost here. You want a car? Same price you pay here. You want a motorcycle? Transportation? It's the same price. They don't worry. They know God's got them. You see, worry and anxiety, it's really a challenge. It's, it's refuting the love that God has for you. And, and then here's what he says. Throw it away. Don't carry worry, anxiety around. He has this picture of, hey, just throw, get it out there, ball it up, and throw it onto Jesus. If you can't do anything about it, give it to God and go on with your life. And here's the deal. Why do we worry? Why do we have anxiety? Because we don't know what's going to happen next in our life. We don't know this next thing, how this will turn out. But that's the exact circumstance that gives us an opportunity to react in faith. So uncertainty is the soil for both faith and anxiety to grow in. It's the same circumstance. So if we respond to God in faith about what we can't control knowing God loves us and wants what's best for us and will see us through, then we can't worry about it. But if we're worrying about it, we can't have faith in God regarding that issue in our life. It's the same set of circumstances that will bring one or the other. That's the third essential. Fourth essential, after submit to church, put on humility, cast anxiety, be aware of your enemy and resist him. Fourth essential that Peter's giving us here. Be aware of your enemy and resist him. Here's what it says in verses 8 and 9. Be sober of spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. He's saying what you're going through, the hardships you're going through, all Christians are going through pretty much. So what do we get from this? First of all, the devil exists. We don't talk about the devil a lot. But the devil exists as the adversary of God. He is a, he's not equal with God. It's not yin-yang, good and bad. The devil is a creating being. He was an angel, probably an archangel, who through pride fell and led a rebellion against God, and God allows him to continue to exist for whatever purposes God's, God has for that. But Christians make the mistake of reacting to the devil in two mistaken ways, some Christians. One way is they react to the devil with what I would call superstition. And they do that by, by sort of interacting with the devil, like every little bad thing, oh, the devil, the devil, the devil's after me, oh, he made me do that, he made me. and every day there's something in their life, the devil, the devil, the devil, superstition. 
And then some of those people with the superstition will say they believe that they can cast the devil or rebuke the devil or tell the devil what he can and can't do, which is not scriptural at all. We don't get to tell the devil what he can and can't do. If we could, we would just rebuke the devil, not for today, but for our whole life. And why, why not just do it for us? Why don't we do that for everybody? If we had that kind of control, logically, no problems. We don't. Even the archangel Michael didn't rebuke the devil. He said, the Lord rebuke you. So I'm just saying, we can't do that. So there is a devil, but we don't have to worry about the devil. It's not yin-yang. God is way more powerful than the devil. And if we are in him, we don't have to worry. But the devil works, the way the devil works is through the sin in our lives. Through the issues we have in our own hearts. So he uses the over-desires, we were talking about several weeks ago. He uses things, lusts, if you will, in our own heart, and he uses that to attack us. He's described as a roaring lion. And, and to us, that's a lion in a cage. But when this is written, no, that's a lion in the jungle that's going to gulp you down any moment, that he's looking for human prey. And that's us. But we have God and we can resist him. And the way we resist him is to armor up, is what Ephesians would say. Or to put it simply, the way we resist him is by not only knowing God's truth, but putting God's truth into practice in our lives. For example, we just talked about two issues, worry, and we, talk, we talked about anxiety, worry, we talked about humility. Putting on humility... And putting on sort of faith, not worrying, getting rid of worry, just doing those two things will help us resist the devil. It will help the devil not have a foothold in our life. But to not do those things will give the devil a foothold to tempt us and mess us up. And now here's the other thing. The devil's temptation always works with sin in our life. But God is telling us as believers that he will not allow any temptation to come into our life or any trial or hardship or suffering to come into our life that we cannot handle with God's help as a believer. He will not let that in our lives, so we don't have to worry about that. We just have to worry about following God. That's what Scripture tells us. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So you got the four? Are are you with me? Submit to church, right? Clothe yourselves in, right? Cast off and be aware of the devil. There is a devil, there is an enemy, and resist him. And then the last thing, the last thing here is trust God and he will put things right. Trust God that he will put things right, that you don't have to worry about. God will take care of it. He'll put it right, and remember, you're not home yet. So I was talking about the the pack and all the ridicule, all the flack I was catching, man purse, and you know all this stuff. Thanks, and uh, that was, and then even David, even David jumped in on it. He was even making fun of me, and then you know what happened? David bought one. So if, you, if he's out talking in the hallways and giving me any, just remind him. David, well, let me show you some pictures. As a matter of fact, I got some pictures. Here's David, the guy who's giving me a hard time. What's that you see slung across his shoulder? 
Um, yeah, immersed. And, there, and there, there's David in the background trying to hide it. You see him right there? Busted. And then again, you know, he's over, he's in the background taking pictures. He's got it. So while we're there, he decides to buy one. He actually buys one just like the one that I used to have, my torn up one. And not the quality of mine, of course, it was inferior. But, and then, but then later, he decided, man, I want one just like it. Even Scott was looking for him. He didn't get one, but he was looking. And he received one as a gift. I know he did. And so here's the deal. Don't let these guys say anything about the rugged, manly pack that I carry when I'm in Thailand. The fifth thing, the pack is what we put all these other essentials in. They're all wrapped in our trust of God. We trust God. We know he's going to make it work. We know he's going to come. That's the last point, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while... He's putting this in an eternal context. Hey, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. How's he wrapping this? He's saying, hey guys, people, Christians, Your life will probably include suffering. Don't be surprised at that. God's not surprised at that, he's saying. He's saying he's not surprised at that. Trust God. His word is guaranteed. It's circumstance proof. Trust him. We all have this suspicion. Even non-believers, I think we all have a suspicion. We were made for more. This can't be it. This can't be all there is. I was destined for something greater. Yes, you were, and yes, you are. That's how your friends are. They're like David. They, they see that you have something, and they, they really want it, even if they don't know it. So here's, are you catching what he's saying? Trust the one who died for you. No matter what hardship, circumstance, whatever's happening in your life, trust the God who died for you. And remember, you're not home yet. You are not home yet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we... We thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you that we can trust you with everything. God, we thank you that we don't have to worry about anything, that you have everything covered it, and that you, if we just keep our eyes on you, nothing nothing can really touch us, not on the inside, not in our souls. That you love us more than we could ever imagine. That anytime we worry... Lord, that's that's us not believing in your love. Lord, help us to be humble. Lord, help us to submit. Lord, help us to be who you want us to be. But most of all, that we would trust you and remember every day and every hardship and every circumstance that we are not home yet. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, thanks for being with us. Come back next week. We're going to have a great Sunday together. You're dismissed.